Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Sit down, sit down, sit down. Please, please. Mark Thornton, what a great guy. And um, what you don't know is I am the chaplain of the Idaho State Senate, but I was the second choice. He was the first choice. He was actually asked, and he couldn't. He had lots of things going on, and he said, no, you know, God's got a real sense of humor. And Mark said, well, go call Doug Armstrong. And, uh, you know, thank you for allowing me to come today. Um, This is a bit of an intimidating group, um, but I'm very humbled that you would allow me to come today. Pastor Chris, thank you. Pastor Ken, Pastor Mark. And of all the things that we could talk about today, from media to pandemics to politics. Um, A wise pastor told me I should just tell my story. He said, you can argue with somebody's sermon, but you can't argue with their story. So I'm I'm just going to do that today. And I'm going to start by saying I am a follower of Jesus Christ. But it hasn't always been that way for me. In fact, for the majority of my life, I believe quite the opposite. Before age 33 and a half, I would have told you that Christians were naive, unscientific, used the idea of a God as an emotional crutch. I was a skeptic, and I made no apologies for it. Now, how do you tell a story? There's lots of ways to tell the story. I've stolen from William Shakespeare's method. William Shakespeare wrote 38 plays, and all of them are divided into five acts. Act one typically introduces the characters in the setting. Act two presents the actions and their complications. Act three is where we reach the climax of the story. The climax is always in act three. And then in act four, the climax is shadowed with confusion, putting the final outcome in doubt. And then in the fifth act... We tie up all the loose ends, the resolution comes, and the story's over. But if you were to go to the Idaho Shakespeare Theater and walk in to an unfamiliar play in the middle of Act 4, you'd be lost. You would not know why the characters were doing what they're doing. So using that structure, you could say D. Sarton's video is basically my Act 4. And so you've walked into my story in the middle of Act 4. But to understand what the characters are doing and why they're doing it, I'm going to reveal to you Acts 1, 2, and 3, so that that will hopefully add some context and understanding to what you just saw. So let's go to Act 1. I was proudly raised in a close-knit blue-collar family. My father and my grandfather Armstrong collectively worked 84 years as pulp and paper mill laborers in Lewiston, Idaho. Now, some of you may have driven past that pulp mill or even lived there for a period of time. I worked two summers in that same pulp and paper mill long enough to know I wanted something different. (laughs) I love my father. I love my grandfather. They were great salt-of-the-earth men. But I simply didn't want to work in a pulp mill for the rest of my life. Now, my mother embraced faith. 
and found out later, prayed for me every day of my life. My father did not. He was agnostic. And I frankly thought my father's agnostic world was way more interesting. As a young father, he was a rebel. And I went in my father's footsteps, and I never looked back. Now, as a young boy, I was captivated with the Apollo space program. It perfectly overlapped my elementary school years. I was head over heels in love with this thing. And I vividly remember Christmas Eve, 1968. Some of you may too. I was 10 years old, and Christmas is everything to a 10-year-old. And our family gathered around the television to watch Walter Cronkite on CBS, the one and only TV channel we got in Lewiston, Idaho. Walter Cronkite explained that night that humans were circling the moon for the first time ever. And boy, I think I wet my pants that night. That was so amazing. (laughs) That night, the Apollo 8 astronauts talked to the world from the moon's orbit. And it's estimated that one in four humans on Earth watched or listened to that New Year's Eve, excuse me, Christmas Eve broadcast. Now, only six months later, I watched Walter Cronkite again as Neil Armstrong piloted Apollo 11 to the first moon landing. Now, just think back for a minute to your elementary school years. I had the same last name as the guy who first walked on the moon. I was a rock star in fourth grade. Completely. And, and believe me, I milked it. I told all of my friends that Neil was my uncle and that that was just the way it was. <laughs> but I was a challenged teenager. Uh, I'll give you a little window into that. Um, when I was 14 years old, 14 years old, think back to your time as 14. In my life, that happened to be January 1973. It was my freshman year in high school, and the Supreme Court of the United States had just declared abortion to be legal and ethical in all 50 states. Now, I remember walking into the kitchen at Bryden Avenue to get something out of the refrigerator, and there was my mother. She was there with a friend of hers, and they were sad, and they were lamenting what had just happened in our Supreme Court. And of course, I knew everything at age 14. You probably did too. I proceeded to tell my mother and her friend that times were changing, that abortion was good for women, good for men, and that she was dumb and stupid for thinking that it wasn't. And you can imagine what my mother did. She cried. Now, there's way more to Act One, but it's safe to say that my identity during my K-12 school years was mostly shaped by science, space exploration, culture for sure, and this notion of rational humanism. The President of the United States said, we're going to send a man to the moon and bring him home safely before the end of the decade. We did that as humans, and I thought humans can do anything. Rational humanism. So, let's fast forward to Act Two. As Act 2 starts, I'm a 22-year-old college student by day and a bartender by night. That's how I worked my way through college. Now, regarding bartending, I won't go into details on that, but I will just simply say it gave me a front-row seat into our human nature. And, And I think I was a pretty darn good bartender, too, and had lots of conversations with people. 
I graduated in 1981 with a business degree, and the Reagan Revolution was just beginning. Now, the Reagan Revolution meant that Wall Street and business executives were cool, and everybody wanted to get into that. The business colleges had an overflow of applications to fill the seats of the business colleges at that time. My philosophy in Act Two came from the New York Times number one best-selling book that swept college campuses in the late 70s. In fact, this book was published my freshman year in college, 1977. All of my peers were reading it. You probably have read it too. The book was called Looking Out for Number One. It was written by Robert Ringer. And of course, I wasn't a Christian. The subtitle of the book says this. It says, how to get from where you are now to where you want to be in life, which is what I'm trying to do in college, right? Now, often an author will dedicate a book to a family member or something like that, but not this book. Here's how the author dedicates this book. He says, it's dedicated to the hope that somewhere in our universe there exists a civilization whose inhabitants possess sole dominion over their own lives sole dominion over their own lives. This book goes on to declare in its thesis that self-sacrifice is foolish, morality is entirely subjective, sound familiar, and religion just seeks to control people. Now, I'm in my early 20s, and I believed all of it, every bit of it. I drank the Kool-Aid, and in my 20s, this book and others like it became my navigation app for seeking purpose, happiness, contentment, fulfillment, all the things that this book said you would get. I wanted what the book was selling. I wanted dominion over my own life. Pride had a grip on me. Now, I told all my bar bartending regulars that I had one goal, and only one goal in life, and that was to run a company. I know, it's a pretty shallow goal, but that's the best I could come up with at the time. Now, some of my bar patrons would offer pretty good advice, and we had great conversations, but others would just kind of roll their eyes and order another drink, humor me. But after graduation, I did soon land on the business and accounting side of the network television industry. And for the rest of my 20s, I had this kind of the singular focus. I remained single, I put on my blinders, and I kept my nose to the grindstone of career advancement. It's all I wanted. It's all I could think of. It's all I wanted to do. I selfishly focused on me, myself, and I. And that's known as that other trinity. Now, in my personal time, I partied, I experimented, and I did things I ought not to be doing, like all my agnostic friends did, but never too much, because I always brought myself back to that goal. I needed to do that. It's a matter of pride. Now, if you asked me back then in Act 2 to sum up my spiritual life, I would have said, I have a spiritual life, but you would have heard me say, organized religion is outdated. It just needs to go away. We should just live and let live. Who am I to judge? And shouldn't we all just seek our own truth because truth is unique to every human being? But don't ever get in my way because I know where I'm going and just stay out of my way. 
Now, I was a skeptic for sure, but worse than that, I was a selfish skeptic, and I made no apologies. Which brings me to Act 3. In Shakespeare, in Shakespeare's five-act story structure, the climax always arrives in Act 3. My Act 3 starts in the most unexpected way. In my very late 20s, very late 20s, I met a girl named Amber. And Amber is sitting right there in the front row. We've been married for 34 years. And... Now, like me at the time, she was not a Christian. I was not a Christian. She wasn't looking for one. I wasn't looking for one. And I wasn't looking for love either. And I certainly didn't see it coming. But Amber was different. And I believe now that God used her, caused me to start thinking of someone other than just me. It's my entire focus up to that point. God was melting my selfishness through this relationship. And I can now see why he put her in my path. One year later, we married. I was just three weeks, three weeks shy of my 30th birthday. And the reason I mention that is I had a bet with my mother that I could make it to 30 without getting married. And, <laughs> and I lost. By 21 days, I lost that bet, and I was happy to pay it to her. What a great moment this was for us, for me, but even so, it's not the climax of Act 3. And then it happened. One year after we married, at the tender age of 31, I aggressively pursued and I landed really a dream job in my industry. I was named the president and general manager of a television media company located in Honolulu, Hawaii. Arendt two network television stations, had 165 employees, and we covered the entire state of Hawaii, all eight islands. And I regularly traveled to those islands for client meetings, industry conferences, and Amber got to go many times with me. And the goal that I had set for myself in college, that I had articulated to my bar patrons, had come true. I was now running a company making more money than I could imagine, and doing it in a Hawaiian paradise, no less. Far, far away from the pulp and paper mill that I had been running from. So, mission accomplished, right? Let the happiness and the contentment and the fulfillment begin. That was the promise. My wife also had a great job in Hawaii, and we had no kids yet, so frankly, to outsiders for sure my parents, to outsiders, it seemed like this young couple was living the dream in Hawaii. We had everything a young couple could want, right? As great as this moment was in our life, it's not the climax of Act 3. Until this point in Act 3, I believed and I never questioned, not once, looking out for number one and philosophies like that. However, for the first two years after I became president of the company, really from age 31 to age 33, I experienced what I can only describe now as this growing discontent. Something was going on. I knew something wasn't right. I, I liked my job, but where in the world was this promised contentment and purpose and fulfillment that was supposed to fill me up to overflowing? 
and bring all of that with it. I had bought what the book was selling, but I began feeling this thing called buyer's remorse. And, and you know what that is. That's that sense of regret you get after a big purchase, only to find that the happiness wears off all too quickly. The great author Stephen Covey says it best like this. He says, if your ladder is not leaning against the right wall, then every step up you take just gets you to the wrong place faster. Stephen Covey nailed it for me. That is exactly what I was feeling at that moment in my life. I was facing the wrong wall. I was believing the wrong narrative. And in hindsight, this spiritual emptiness, this hollowness, in hindsight, I can now see that it was God's Holy Spirit stirring my discontent for those two years, not letting me sleep, not letting me think right, not letting me off the hook. And I believe it was because of the prayers of my mother. Wow. So what did I do? Well, I, I'm in this period of discontent. What did I do during this two-year period? Well, I did what you probably would have done. I searched for the right wall. I wanted to find where that was. Now, there's lots of walls you can lean your ladder against. Religion is one of them. And Honolulu is this cultural melting pot. It's a great city for studying comparative religions. So study I did. I'm a researcher. I love to dig in. But I quickly noticed that all major religions in the world, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, etc., all of them acknowledge the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. But they all have different definitions of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, beyond the contradictions that you see from these different religions, I thought it was best and even wise to read for myself the red-letter words of Jesus to see who he claimed to be and who, how he defined himself. And if you haven't done that, I highly recommend that. I also had this secret routine. During my daily 40-minute commute to work, yes, traffic can be that way in Honolulu, during my 40-minute commute to work, in my car, I surfed through local radio stations, and there was one Christian talk station, KLHT, still on the air today. I secretly timed my commute to and from work to coincide with radio shows featuring pastors who were mostly from California, people like Chuck Smith, Mike McIntosh, some of these folks. And it was there, in my car, that I found a radio show called A New Beginning. A New Beginning. With this young pastor from Riverside, California, named Greg Laurie. This secret of mine, this what I call clandestine radio routine, it went on for many months. I'd talk to Amber about it, and she would listen to some of the shows as well, and we would talk about it. But it was our secret, my secret. I did not want anybody to know. I had a, an image to uphold, right? 
So I slowly began to realize that my navigation app was leading me in the wrong direction. And this is what your pastors here, Pastor Chris and others, would describe as God's divine grace, nudging me through the Holy Spirit's conviction. God's Holy Spirit was slowly giving me eyes to see, ears to hear, and chipping away steadily the plaque on my prideful and hard heart. Then a new catalyst entered the scene. Another coincidence. My wife and I started talking about having children. And, you know, that can change things, right? Your whole perspective on life. You start going, well, what if, you know, they're going to ask me things. We reason together is that eventually a child of ours might come to us and ask us one of those big three questions of life. And you know what they are. Mommy, where do I come from? Daddy. Why am I here? And mommy, daddy, what happens to me after I die? We concluded as husband and wife that it would be a betrayal to deny an innocent child a responsibly formed answer to those questions. But folks, we had not answered those questions for ourselves, let alone for a child of ours. So we were in a predicament. Now, around the same time, I confided in a local Hawaii pastor his name was Ron Hunt. Was East Oahu Christian Church was his, was his congregation. Ron was a golfing friend, still a friend today. I told Ron that I was secretly listening to Greg Laurie's A New Beginning radio show. And Ron said, wow, Doug, what a coincidence. What a coincidence. And this word pops up a lot in my journey, and it probably does in yours too. He said, Greg Laurie is coming to Honolulu, Hawaii. And he said, you and your wife should go. You should attend. He said, it's going to be at a great venue. It's in the shadow of Diamond Head in Kapiolani Park, in the, under the palm trees at the Outdoor Bandshell Theater. What a great venue. You should come. No. I thought to myself, no way. I, I did not want any of my clients or any of my employees to see me there. I mean, I, right? I, I had this ball around my ankle. It's called running a company. I had an image to portray. And besides that, I still had this unfavorable view of the overall Christian thing. But I don't always get what I want. And we, as a compromise... We decided we would go, but I'm going to sit all the way in the back, the very back row, because I wanted to hide. Didn't want anybody to see me. But folks, you know this. You cannot hide from an omnipresent God. He is sitting right here in the front row and in the back row. He is throughout the sanctuary right now, and he is with every one of your family members, whether they believe or not. He is right there. You cannot hide. I didn't know that, though. But what an evening. And that night, I heard a simple, compelling, and beautiful gospel message. Greg Laurie's Holy Spirit-inspired words pierced my prideful veneer and my selfish nature. And I now realize, I can see it now in hindsight, I now realize that I was experiencing at that moment the tail end of a two-year-long process orchestrated by God that put me on a collision course with myself. All 
through Greg Laurie's gospel invitation that very night. Now, interestingly, my wife Amber had been on her own spiritual journey for a couple of years, but that's her story to tell. But that September evening, Sunday evening, I was 33 and a half years old in Kapiolani Park. We both found our new beginning. And as husband and wife, we got on our knees, we shed tears of joy, and we went palms up under the palm trees. Now, there's lots of ways that the human person gets off track into the weeds and gets into trouble. There's lots of sinful behavior out there. But C.S. Lewis wrote once that pride is the utmost evil. It is the worst of all. It was my sin. And if you remember, the Apostle Paul said, I am the worst of sinners. And that's how I felt. That night, I put to death my pride. I apologized to my creator for my selfish and sinful past. And listen to this. I gave sole dominion over my life to Jesus Christ alone. This is the climax of Act 3. Without a doubt. But the words of John the Baptist haunted me at the time. John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. Now, if you had asked me in Act 2 of my life to write this verse or edit this verse, it would have been, no, no, no. I must increase. I'm the one. I'm the center. Folks, my entire life until that moment, I have been doing exactly the opposite of that verse. Now, for me, change came slowly for some things, pretty quickly for others. I think I became more empathetic, more caring, better listener, hopefully a better husband, a better neighbor. And then it hit me. I needed to be a better business leader. God did not change my occupation. I was still the president of a secular media company in Honolulu, Hawaii. But he did change the purpose and the vision of my occupation. The day after, the day after the Sunday night in Kapiolani Park came Monday morning. And I did what I always do on a Monday. I get up very early. I want to be the first one in the office so I can get my week set up and running right. Got in my car. I made the same commute to work. Walked through the same lobby of our television station on Sand Island Boulevard. Sat down at my same office. Looked. My schedule was the same. I walked through the television station that morning like a little zombie, just looking around. The hardware of my life was the same, but I realized the software had to change. So I just sat there with tears in my eyes and I realized everything had changed for me and nothing could stay the same. 
I had to focus on something different. I had to shift away from trying to run a great company and building lots of profits to building a stronger community, to giving the organization away to the charitable sector, to doing what we could do so that the families of our community could say, the, the media, frankly, is my friend. They're not my enemy. And that didn't all hit me at that moment. I couldn't articulate everything there. I just knew the weight was on my shoulders, and I had to make some changes. My new beginning was September 15th, 1991, what I now refer to as the greatest night of my life. Now, there were other great events like marriage to Amber, birth of our children, job promotions. Folks, but personally knowing your creator is and should be the greatest of all time. It is for me. Uh, and there's one other thing I had to do. At the next available opportunity, when I saw my parents face to face next time, they were living in Idaho, we were living in Hawaii, they came to visit. I took a knee in front of my mother. And I apologized for my my crazy teenage years, all the heartbreak that that brought her, and specifically for my 14-year-old comments that made her cry. And I made her cry again. <laughs> and then she told me she'd been praying for me every single day of my life. And she thought that day would never come after 34 years. Don't stop praying. Five years later, after this greatest night, we're still living in Honolulu, Hawaii, but our world is different. We now have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and our perspective had changed on everything. And we were looking at life very differently. And we started praying about, well, what next? You know, we wanted our children to know their grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles and all this, and we're way out there on an island. Another coincidence. As we started praying about next steps, the president's job at KTVB Boise came open at the exact same time. Coincidence. So, Act 3 ends as our young family moves from Honolulu, Hawaii to Boise, Idaho, where I became the president of KTVB, which really brings us back to where we started, right? Act 4. The earlier video describes 20-plus years of Act 4, but as Paul Harvey used to say, now for the rest of the story. Toward the end of Act 4, unknown to all of you, I have a confession to make today. I experienced what I can only describe now as a personal crisis of faith. Big time. Big doubts. We had five family-related heartbreaks in our close-knit family that all occurred at the same time. Just boom, boom, boom. I felt like I was in the ring with Muhammad Ali. They happened in rapid succession in the same year. One of the heartbreaks, the one in the middle, 
was my father's diagnosis of a rare and very painful form of cancer. It was brutal. At the same time that he was dying, my brother, who I'm closest to, had a dreadful and devastating stroke. Now, I don't have time to go into all five of these things or to unpack them. I'll just say, if you want to buy me a cup of coffee, we'll have a conversation. But I will say, I couldn't fix anything. And boy, did I try. You know, I'm running a company. I'm a dad, like a lot of people in this room. I'm a fixer, and I wanted to fix everything. And I tried. And it kept getting worse and worse. And I kept getting more and more angry, asking why more and more often. And I started to wonder, have I been a fool all these years believing something? Where's God now? I mean, right? I mean, it's supposed to have a better life when you're a believer, right? No, it doesn't say that in Scripture. But I was angry. Now, if you remember Shakespeare's five-act structure, the fourth act, the climax of the story in the fourth act is shadowed with confusion, putting the final outcome in doubt. And that's why I've picked this formula, because that's exactly where I was, in the shadow of confusion and doubt. I, my job was fine, but I was angry and mad, and I was taking it out on my creator and myself, frankly. I wondered why God would put my loved ones all through this muck and mire at the same time. I doubted my faith. I needed more than Christian catchphrases. I was getting a lot of those. I wanted facts. That's who Doug Armstrong is. So I submerged in doubts. I decided at retirement to take my crisis of faith to the Moody Theological Seminary. Isn't that what everybody does, right? I immersed myself in biblical studies for two years. So when you heard D. Sarton say I was going to Moody, that's why. I needed answers. Now, fortunately, I was able to graduate just before the COVID season hit, so I got a real graduation ceremony. And I was also asked to speak at the commencement breakfast, I don't know why, about what I learned in graduate school. So if I may, I'm going to close Act 4 by reading to you part of the same speech that I gave in Chicago, which I now look at and I call it the resolution. So here it goes. As the oldest student in my cohort, perhaps I viewed the idea of a master's degree in biblical studies differently than others. After all, I have no occupational aspirations. Instead, it was a series of life events that drove me to question my faith and test its foundation. I reasoned that if I'm going to spend the remainder of my life believing in something, it must be founded on historical truth and objective reality. I truly dislike delusion. So for me, the two-year journey is way more important than the final degree. Graduate school helped me see why. The Bible is the most unique and best-selling book in the history of the world. This year alone, over 100 million copies will be printed worldwide. The Bible's really more like a small, diverse library made up of dozens of separate books penned by 40 different writers 
over a period of 1,500 years, originating from three continents and in three different languages. Moreover, it contains diverse literary genres, including law, history, wisdom, poetry, narrative, songs, epistles, and prophecy. And yet, from this stew, this stew of diversity, the Bible voices one single, beautifully integrated story of God from beginning to end. How in the world is this perfect unity possible from that vast diversity? I now see why the Bible is more than ink on paper and how it delivers divinely inspired answers to questions like, who is God? Why am I here? What is wrong with this world? And how can things be made right? Now, to be clear, we do not worship the Bible. Rather, we exalt the person whom the Bible reveals, the Lord Jesus Christ. There are nearly 300 scriptural references to over 60 prophecies of a promised Messiah that were literally fulfilled in the one person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The odds of one person fulfilling all these prophecies is beyond all mathematical possibility. Beyond this, the disciples of Jesus were eyewitnesses to the first Easter, and this miraculous experience emboldened them to spread the good news, even under the constant threat of prison and death. The disciples' devotion to what they knew to be true has literally changed our world forever. Graduate school transformed me through biblical beauty, goodness, and truth. And after questioning my faith and testing its foundation, I am led home into the loving arms of Jesus Christ. Which brings me to Act 5. I'm in Act 5. I'm looking on here. Some of you are in Act 5 too. Graduation was my starting point in Act 5. Proverbs 16.9 says this, In their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Well, as you heard earlier, I'm in my second year as chaplain of the Idaho State Senate, and what a journey that's been. I know Pastor Ken did that once, and um, I look out at my congregation every day. It's very different than this one. And folks, I'm on the organizing team of the Greg Laurie Harvest Festival. And I want to underscore that I'm an enthusiastic member of the Greg Laurie Harvest Festival. It's coming to Boise in just a couple weeks. Time's running out. And this is the main reason I'm here today. So if you could draw your attention to the screen, we're going to show this video. You may have seen it already, but we're going to show it again. Greg Laurie. Hey everybody, Greg Laurie here. Well, it's finally going to happen. The Boise Harvest. Oh, I know. We thought it was going to happen a while ago, but we had some setbacks with COVID. But we are coming April 23 to 24 at the Extra Mile Arena. So I need your help. There's a few things you can do to make this event a success. Number one, pray. 
every day, would you please start praying for this event? Lord, bless the Boise Harvest. Bring the right people there. Let the weather cooperate. Lord, bring thousands of people into your kingdom. Send a spiritual awakening to the Treasure Valley. So start by praying. Number two, invite. Invite someone. Think of someone you know that is not yet a believer and extend that invitation, not for them to go to the event, but for them to come to the event with you. You're going to bring them to the event. Remember the story in the Bible, Andrew brought his brother to Jesus. So you need to bring your friend, your neighbor, your family member to the event. And one last thing, serve. And we need help. I need help with counselors, uh, people to meet those folks that will walk forward and make a profession of faith to follow Christ. And I'm telling you right now, a lot of people are going to do it. And it might be someone you know if you start praying for them and if you bring them. So I need counselors, I need ushers, and I need more. Get hold of us and say, how can I help? How can I serve? It's going to be amazing music, of course, from our friends Chris Tomlin, Andy Minio, Jeremy Kemp, the Harvest Worship Band. I'll look forward to seeing all of you very soon for the Boise Harvest. Before our COVID delays, we had a group of pastors that met at Louie's Restaurant right next door here. And Greg Laurie was here. This was a couple years ago now. And Greg Laurie did not know my story. But the guy sitting to my right did, Mark Arenas. And Mark asked me to stand up and tell that story. And you see, I get emotional at times about that journey. I couldn't get through it. Greg just got up and gave me this big bear hug. And I realized that's what heaven's going to be like. Greg had no idea that he had influenced my journey, my vector in life, putting me on a whole different course. And folks, that's the way it's going to be for you too. You're going to get to heaven and someone is going to come up to you and say, thank you for what you did, what you said, what you gave, how you were. And you kind of go, I had no idea. Really? When I was 33 and a half years old, someone loved me enough to invite me to attend the Harvest Festival. Ron Hunt looked past my job, past the veneer of my life. He knew there was a good chance I would say no, or worse yet, make fun of me, or make fun of him for inviting me. I had the chance to speak one time to a men's group uh, at Eagle Christian Church. There were 400 men in this room, and I told my story and talked about Ron Hunt, and afterwards, this gentleman came walking over to me. He had this look on his face. I could tell he wanted to talk. He goes, I'm Ron Hunt's uncle. And he said, I remember when Ron, who married my niece, wanted to go to Hawaii to be a pastor. And he said, and I told Ron, nobody goes to Hawaii to be a pastor. You go there on vacation. That's, you know, you go, you want to serve the Lord, go to a third world country, do something like that. 
but Ron was insistent. He was angry at his nephew-in-law for taking his niece there. And he looked at me and says, now I know. Ron could not see into my heart. He did not know that the Holy Spirit had been working on me for two years. And like the parable of the sower and the seed, Ron did not know the condition of my soil. And I have great respect for Mother Teresa. She was asked one time by a senator of the United States who was touring India. And the senator asked her, Mother Teresa, how do you measure success in your ministry to the poorest of the poor? And she just looked at the senator and said, Senator, I'm not called to be successful. God called me to be faithful. Ron Hunt was faithful to me, to his Lord and Savior. And he saw me the same way that Jesus saw me, the way I really was. I was just this wretched, lost person in need of the gospel. Without that invitation in Act 3 of my life, I don't know what vector I would have been on in my life. I don't know where I would have ended up. I, I probably wouldn't be standing here for sure. I just don't know. But here's the big question. The question is, who do you know in your life? that needs to hear what Greg Glory has to say. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for the good news of your gospel. Your word tells us that you are patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And Lord, we thank you for Pastor Greg Glory and his willingness to speak the truth and to tell the world about the good news of Jesus Christ. And for Capital Church, Lord, please give them the heart to pray, to invite, and to bring people who need to hear your message, who need to hear the gospel. We ask for your Holy Spirit to invite and to ignite the flames of revival in this treasure valley as we seek to be obedient to your call upon our lives. We love you, Lord, and we ask all of this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.